The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Great to worship with you this morning. Uh, uh, this uh, this morning's one of those Sundays uh, that happens uh, once or twice a year, where I have a uh, uh, I have the subject matter that we've come to in the study of Hebrews, which is uh, very deep, and would I would prefer to have an hour or two with you uh, in the teaching of it. But I have about twenty five minutes with you, so here's what I want you to do: I want you to take your Bible. I want you to follow along. If you don't have your Bible, if you normally look at the screens, you might want to get it open today. Uh, This is a Sunday to get out a pen or a pencil and write down some things because we're going to be in the the deeper end of the theological pool. Now, last week, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 brought us to a place in verse 22 where he said to us, plainly, it is God's desire that you have the full assurance of, of your salvation. And many of you wrote on your response card, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And it's a wonderful thing to know that my salvation is assured by the hand and the sovereignty and the will of God. He, he holds on to me, I don't hold on to him. Now the, the reason that the writer took that time to talk about our assurance, our eternal security, at that part of Hebrews chapter 10, is because now he comes to a difficult and a a more sobering subject, and that has to do with deliberate sin. And and so before we go to Hebrews chapter 10, let's, uh, let's honestly consider what most of us have heard before from somebody. In fact, it's a common statement. If you've been you've been a believer more than a year or two, and you've been studying God's Word, and you've run into somebody, you've probably heard someone say to you, well, if, if, you, if you think we can't lose our salvation, then, then what keeps us people, what keeps people from going out and, and doing whatever they want, because we're going to go to heaven anyway, right? Have, have you heard that before? Somebody along the way says, well, wait a second. If, if you think that you have blessed assurance that God's going to hold you and hold on to you no matter what, then if you're, if you're already stamped and you're already reserved into heaven, well, then you can go and do whatever you want because you're going to go to heaven. And so this morning, I want to answer that question. I want to give that a, a very sincere look. Now, I'm, I'm not going to answer it at a theological level in terms of the implausibility of the mix of grace and works, of the fact that that means that sinful man has something to do with a perfect salvation. I'm not going to talk about the fact that uh, Jesus' uh, sacrifice isn't enough if I have to add my works to that. We're, we're not going to discuss it at that level. We're going to talk about what happens if you claim to know Christ, what happens if you know God's Word, what happens if you know the Gospel, you know the character of God, and you you choose and continue to choose a life of deliberate sinning. So let's, let's rephrase the question. What's the effect? Here's, here's our question. What is the effect of knowing and understanding the character of God, 
knowing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, his shed blood and the redemption and the atonement for our souls, claiming that you've received it, and continuing in deliberate or blasphemous sin. What, what does that look like biblically? So before we get to Hebrews chapter 10, let's start in Mark chapter 3. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Get your, keep your Bibles out. Keep your pen going. We're going to do it. I'm going to do it very quickly, much faster than I would like to. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has been doing incredible miracles. And the scribes from Jerusalem uh, are doing their very best to discredit him. They, uh, they, uh, they hate what he stands for. They hate the threat on their own political power. They hate the threat of their own uh, religious and cultural power. And they have found themselves standing squarely as the adversaries of God. Claiming to represent God, they have become the enemies of God. Jesus is uh, in the countryside. He's not in Jerusalem. He's drawing huge crowds uh, that are coming out of the cities to see him. He's doing miracles. And so the scribes come up with an actual strategy. It's a, it's a political manipulation to manipulate the crowds. They're going to go to where he is. They leave Jerusalem. They come to where he is. They don't stand in front of the crowd and uh, take him on in a straight, fair debate. They stand in the back of the crowd, and they whisper this, and they whisper that. Here's how it goes. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying uh, of Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub in the... In Hebrew, really just means the god of dung. It it is a tremendous derogatory name that has been given and now is attached to Satan himself. So so when uh, Hebrew spoke of Beelzebub, it's it's the name of the devil, but it's a very derogatory name, and they choose it purposely to try to sway the crowds against Jesus. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. That's, that's how he's doing all these miracles. That's how he cast out demons, by the power of Satan himself. So the scripture says in verse 23 that Jesus called to them and he said to them. Now when he says he called to them, he, he calls them out. They're not at the front of the crowd saying, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. They're at the back of the crowd saying, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. And they're trying to turn the crowds against him. He knows their thoughts. He knows what they're doing. So he speaks to them in parables. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, well, he's divided. He, he can't win. He can't stand. He will come to an end. He continues in another parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. If you go in there, he's going to defend himself. He's going to fight against you. You've got you to gotta overcome him first before you can get his stuff. So no one can, can do that unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you. Now, what Jesus does is he gives us a couple of parables. Unlike on other occasions where we have these parables and then we, have, we kind of have to figure out what the parable means, on this occasion, Jesus tells us the application. 
he tells us exactly what it is that he's talking about. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Say amen. Isn't that good to know? All of your sins can be forgiven. They're, they're all included here. Sometimes people think that uh, suicide can't be forgiven or murder can't be forgiven or uh, certain uh, atrocities couldn't or shouldn't be forgiven. Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, those will be forgiven. But we have a phrase here that gives us pause. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He's guilty of eternal sin. And verse 30 says, He said this because they were saying of Jesus and of the miracles that he, were, he was doing, He does it by the power of an unclean spirit. I want you to, I want you to understand this exactly. Jesus is doing what He did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every now and then we think, oh, no, Jesus does, does it by his own divine prerogative. No, he left his divine prerogative in heaven. Everything that Jesus did on earth, he did it the way you and I would have to do it. He, he did it as a human. He's 100% God, but he's 100% man. And as a man, every miracle that he did, every demon that he cast out, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, these scribes from Jerusalem are attributing the work of God... The work of love and grace and mercy, the most beautiful things on the planet, they are attributing to an unclean spirit, to Beelzebub, to the devil. And Jesus says they have crossed a line into a sin that will not be forgiven. Theologians call this passage the the unpardonable sin. So let's talk about it just for a little bit because it's really important that you understand this before we get back to Hebrews 10. The unpardonable sin is not murder. It's not suicide. It's not some individual sin. That's not what it is. Neither is is it what some people just grab superficially from the passage. Neither is it just uh, me cursing the Holy Spirit or blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Uh, that doesn't make any sense with the passage. That would mean that I can curse God the Father, and I can use Jesus' name for a curse word, but if I use the Holy Spirit's name for a curse word, I'll never be forgiven of that. That's to make the Holy Spirit higher than God the Father and God the Son. That's not the intent of this passage at all. That's not even what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, this is the total and complete rejection of the work of God. Now, let's talk about the work of God. The work of God begins in the Old Covenant. We've been studying that in Hebrews chapter 10, where God reveals himself as uh, Yahweh, as Father, as Lord. Then the, work of the Holy, uh, then the work of God is the work of the Son, the redemptive work of the Son, who comes right here and walks amongst us. And that's what we're reading about in Mark chapter 3 here. And then Jesus says, I'm going to uh, ascend back to the throne of my Father so that I can send you the Holy Spirit. And at the beginning of uh, Pentecost then, we have the age, the time, the dispensation of the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see that God the Father is at work, and God the Son is at work, and God the Holy Spirit is at work. And here's what Jesus is saying. You reject the Father, and he's really speaking to them in the past. You've rejected the Father, 
that can be forgiven because the sun is still coming. You reject the sun and the Holy Spirit is coming. When the Holy Spirit comes, who testifies of the Son, and you reject the work of the Holy Spirit, there's not a fourth person of the of the Godhead coming. There's there's no more of God coming. He he has come and and demonstrated and manifested himself as Father. He's come and revealed himself as Son. He has come and his Holy Spirit has done a holy work. And now when you call the holy work of God the work of Satan, when you literally take truth and you turn it upside down, you reject God and you claim that God's work is demonic work, and you've rejected God, and you've rejected God, and you've rejected Him over and over and over again, there is some place there in the spiritual realm, an invisible line that Jesus says becomes the sin of rejection that won't be forgiven. In fact, it's, it's kind of easy to understand that way. Every sin will be forgiven, right? Every sin will be forgiven. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal. That'll be forgiven you. You can, come to, you can come to Christ and that'll be forgiven. But if you reject Christ, there isn't any way for your sins to be forgiven. Are, are you following that? So rejecting God becomes then the sin that is unforgivable. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about deliberate rejecting of the lordship of God in your life, choosing your own way. And as you choose your own way, in order to rationalize your own way, you declare that God's way is the demonic way. My way is the good way. God's actually evil. That's what the scribes from Jerusalem were declaring. It's a passage called the unpardonable sin. Now, let me just say a couple more things here, because whenever I teach this, a bunch of people leave fearful. If you're a believer, you, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. They're, they're opposites. You have received Jesus. You haven't rejected Christ. You have received him. So a, a believer hasn't committed or, or uh, sinned the unpardonable sin. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit is stirring you and you're here because you care about... Uh, spiritual things, and you're seeking Christ, and you have a desire to know Him, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is recognizable because you don't care about these things at all. If you're here, and the only reason you're here is because your wife is here and just keeps the family peaceful, but you don't believe these things, and as I speak, there's no stirring in your heart, that's a different thing. That's something you, you better stop and consider. If you're here because your parents make you come, and you're just doing time, and you're like, you just want to get this over with, and you know Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you don't really care about that, and you want to choose your own way, you should pay attention. You should think about that and what that really means. So the unpardonable sin is a sin that an individual can commit where he rejects the work of God. That's step one in in understanding Hebrews 10. Step two is we're going to talk about apostasy. Turn with me to to, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The word apostasy is not an English word. Uh, We made it an English word. It comes straight from the Greek. It it means falling away. 
And it's a description of those who live in the, the community of faith uh, because they're married to a believer, because their parents are believers, because they grew up in it, they just, because they gave some mental assent to it along the way. But along the way, they just decided, I don't think I believe this stuff. Uh, this isn't who I am. Or, yeah, I believe it, but it doesn't mean that much. Uh, you can really go your own way. It is the person who kind of thinks, you know what? I went forward when I was nine. I asked Jesus in my heart. I'm going to heaven when I die. I can do whatever I want now. And so the word apostasy kind of applies to people who belonged to the community of faith by name or by relationship, but they never belonged to Christ. And the Scripture says, and we find this a lot in the New Testament. I've given you a lot of Scriptures in that uh, bulletin sermon outline that I'm not going to have time to turn to, but I've given those to you. The Scripture says that as we grow closer to the second coming of Christ, apostasy grows greater. The trend gets bigger and wider. Here's one of those passages, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know exactly what we're about to learn about. It's the teaching of the second coming of Christ. And he adds, and are being gathered together to him. So it's not just the end of the second coming of Christ, but it's the beginning of that in the rapture. He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a counterfeit letter seeming to have come from us. Don't believe the the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Somebody in Thessalonica came into the church and said, oh, Jesus has already come back. You guys missed it. And they were like, we, we missed the coming of the Lord? And so Paul's writing this letter now to clarify that. And he says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now the English Standard Version that I'm reading from says the rebellion. It's the actual word apostasy. Probably a better translation would be the falling away. Until, until that time when people who claim to know Christ, people who claim Christianity, decide, "Ah, you know what? Those are just hate-filled homophobes. I think I'm going to walk away from that. People who decide, no, that's too narrow for me. I think I'm going to walk away from that. People who go like, I I really think that uh, Muslims and Buddhists are going to get there too. I'm going to walk away from the Christ-only kind of doctrine. And so we see this all around us today. It's the beginning of that. He's talking about the conclusion of it and how it happens. He says, he says, uh, don't be deceived. The day will not come until the rebellion, the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship because he alone wants to be the object of worship. He will proclaim himself to be God. He'll take his seat in the temple. That's what uh, Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. And he says in verse 5, Don't you remember? I told you these things. I, I, this is what I taught to you. And you know what is now restraining him? Uh, you know that this, in its time that will all be revealed. Verse 7, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's already kind of a, an apostasy going on, Paul says. Only he who now restrains it will do it until he's taken away. Now, it's twice he said that. And he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that the uh, unpardonable sin is focused on the final rejection of God in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and the apostasy is connected to the time when the Holy Spirit, who is with with straining and withholding back the work of Satan and Antichrist, God will take him out with the rapture as well. 
And so we see these all connected. He says in verse 8, Then the lawless, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that interesting? That's all that, that's all that Paul gives this. Talk about a byline. I mean, this fits in a tweet, right? It's not seven years and seven trumpets and seven seals and all that John, he just says, yeah, the Antichrist is going to show up. God's going to kill him with the breath of his mouth. It's not even a picture that we want to think of Armageddon where you and I are side by side with Jesus and we're fighting against Darth Vader and it's close, but we almost lose and then we win. That's that's not what this is at all. Jesus just takes care of it, the spoken word. Just as easy as he said, let there be light. He says, let there be no antichrist, and it's done. And there's a power in this that I don't want you to miss. He goes on and he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all the power and the false signs and wonders and all the wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Let me say this again. I want you to hear it. It's not God's will that any perish, but all come to salvation. That's what he desires. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, verse 11, God sends on them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but instead had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's put these together so that you can understand it. The unpardonable sin is an individual sin committed by an individual person. You understand that ultimately when we stand before the Lord, we stand before the Lord individually. I can't I can't receive Jesus for you and you can't reject Jesus for me. Each of us does this individually. If I could receive Jesus for you, I would do it today but I can't. Only you can receive Jesus for you. So the unpardonable sin is, has an individual application. Apostasy is numbers of people choosing the unpardonable sin. It's a, it's a number of people who together can be counted by maybe in a church a half a dozen or a dozen or maybe in a denomination a, a dozen or two dozen churches or, or maybe in a country even tens of thousands or millions of people who grew up in church, heard the gospel, know the character of God, know the word of God and say, that's not for me. I don't want that. I don't believe in that God. I, I, I'll go my own way. And the Bible describes that as apostasy. Now, now that you understand those two things, now Hebrews chapter 10 is going to make sense. Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 10, the, the sermon last week, the paragraph before what we're about to read is beautiful. It's gorgeous. God wants us to have the full assurance of our faith. What comes with the full assurance of our faith? Look at verse 24. I mean, Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This passage is so fantastic. It means that I love you, and the more I love you, the more you love me, and the more you love me, the more I love you. And so the more I love you, the more you love me, and we stir up love and good works amongst us. That's how we're called to live. This is a fantastic passage. Verse 26 is a turn. If we go on sinning deliberately, this is really our question, isn't it? The question is, what happens if you sin deliberately? And you just, 
You just say, oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I can do what I want. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Speaking of the Old Covenant again, because that's what the writer of Hebrews does over and over again, anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned, or the word means trampled, the Son of God and profaned the blood of of the new covenant, the the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. He quotes the Old Testament now because he's writing to Hebrews. For we know the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord said that several times in the Old Testament. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He concludes by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what do we have in this passage? We have in this passage of Hebrews chapter 10 a description of the unpardonable sin slash apostasy. It's a picture of an individual who rejects God. It's a picture of a group of people who reject God the truth of God. Now, um, if you and I uh, look at the passage carefully, it's, it's very plain spoken, isn't it? I mean, this is not a passage where you need a seminary education. Look at it in verse 29. What's the effect? Here's our question. Remember the question of the morning. What's the effect of knowing and understanding the character of God and the gospel of Jesus and claiming that you received it, but continuing in deliberate blasphemous sin. What is that? It's the same as, number one, trampling underfoot the Father's precious Son. Two, profaning and making a mockery of the holy blood of Jesus. And three, outraging. Does, does, is God ever outraged? Here it is outraging the spirit of grace. That's what it's the same as. What's the result of it? It's clearly a rejection of the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 26 tells us the result is there's not another sacrifice for you. It's not like uh, Jesus came and revealed himself as Father and then Son and Holy Spirit, and that wasn't enough for you. Okay, so I'll, I'll come up with another sacrifice for you. That, that's not God's plan of salvation. He gave his most precious son. Are are the streets of gold more precious to the father than his son? Are the gates, the pearly gates, more precious to the father than his son? He gave his one and only son. And so your expectation, it says here in verse 27, can only be judgment and eternal torment. The idea that some today are so surprised that we still preach the blood of Jesus as the only way out of heaven and if you and if you reject that eternity in hell as the punishment don't don't see scripture as we see it scripture speaks of this over and over and over again 
Did you know that Jesus spoke of hell more than heaven? There's a, there's a warning here to us. And the last warning in verses 30 and 31 is that this is between you and God. I can't do this for you. You can't do this for me. But it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now back to the first question, and then I've run out of time. The first question is, well, if I believe what you believe in terms of assurance, then I could go out and sin and do whatever I want, and I still get to go to heaven. That's, scripture never teaches that. Scripture says if, if you can go out and do whatever you want and blatantly thumb your nose at God and trample the sacrifice of Jesus and disregard the Holy Spirit, then you're not a believer. You say, well, that's just what you think. I mean, I, I say one loses their salvation. You say they never had. No, well, instead of us arguing humanly at the human level, let's let the scriptures tell us what it is that God says. So turn with me, last passage, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I'm sorry for the brevity of this and yet the uh, severity of it. But here we are putting all of this together so that we can understand we who have received Christ indeed have a blessed assurance. God holds us. He cares for us. But to say that you are going to make heaven because you attended church or you were confirmed or you went to Christian school or because your parents are a Christian is foreign to Scripture. First, uh, First John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, children, he's about 95 when he writes this. So if you're 95, you can call anybody children that you want to. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. And so now many, plural, Antichrists have come. He's talking about the apostasy. He's talking about people in the church who are Antichrist. And they're leading their church. They're, they're leading people away with false doctrine. This is what he says in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you see what he's saying there? These are not people who lost their salvation. These are people who never had it. You don't get blessed assurance and then find out it's not so blessed and it's not really assurance. That doesn't make sense. The true believer who sincerely gives his life to Christ is assured of his salvation. The others are pretenders. They're professors but not possessors. They have their names on the church roll but not in the Lamb's book of life. They may have faked out you and me but really, can you, can you get into heaven faking out God? Anyone going to get into heaven in a loophole? Anyone going to disdain Christ, God's only begotten, and still get into heaven? That doesn't make any sense. That's what the writer is talking about here. And so we're, we're confronted with this. Now, I'm out of time, but let's close this way. If you're here this morning and you have given your life to Christ, and he's your Lord and Savior. You can't, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. Your, your salvation is assured. Join, join us in stirring up one another to good works and to love. 
and we'll do it together. And God will be blessed and his kingdom will be extended and we will preach the gospel and not fall away. But if you're here this morning and, and you just come because of your spouse or your parents or, or you're just here because whatever reason and you're just kind of playing at this, this morning I, I want you to know that eternity's real, that hell is real, that God's not playing games. You don't get in with a wink and a nod. That all of this centers around Christ and his shed blood on the cross. And it's God's desire that today would be the day of salvation for you. And that you would give your life to Christ. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and you've been coming and you've been listening to me and others preach and and now you, Holy Spirit has prompted your heart. And today, you want to make your salvation certain. You could pray a simple prayer right there in the stillness of your heart as I pray it out loud. It, it could go something like this. Dear Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know there have been times when I did whatever I wanted and I, I didn't care what you wanted. I, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I know that I deserve hell. But today I'm asking you, to place the wages of my sin on Jesus. And I believe that his death on the cross paid for my sin. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and come into my life and my heart. And the best that I know how from this day forward, I'll live for you. If you prayed that prayer right there in the stillness of your own heart as I prayed it out loud, the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you've moved past unbelieving to believing. You've moved out of being a child of darkness to a child of light. And you can have the assurance of God's word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. But how many of you, just to, just to confirm what you've done in your heart, would just lift your hand and say, Paul, when you prayed that prayer, I, I prayed it with you in the stillness of my own heart. You just lift your hand up and you put it right back down. Yes, yes. God bless you. Any others? Yes, thank you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you know you're a believer, but you've been playing at this just a little bit. You've kind of forgotten about eternity and hell. It's time that you rededicate yourself and you just lift your hand and say, Paul, pray for me. I want to rededicate myself to eternal things and to Christ. And you lift your hand up so that I could pray for you. Yes, yes, yes. And how many of you this morning would say, Paul, pray for me, my family. I've I've got people in my life, loved ones, who don't know Christ and pray for them that I might be a witness to them. And you lift your hand. Yes, all over the room. God bless you all over the room. Father, you've seen our hands, but more importantly, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. And so, Father, these who have prayed to receive you this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rush into their hearts and souls with the full assurance of faith. And I pray that they would know that you have changed them, that they are new creatures in Christ. For these that are right there on the edge, Father, I pray that by your grace and mercy, you would give them a little more time to come to you for repentance. Father, for these who've rededicated themselves today, Father, we, we, we don't want to get sucked into the things of the world. We want to live for you and, and for things that have eternal value. So, Father, take these hearts that have asked you to to rededicate them as they give themselves to you in new consecration. And Father, for our loved ones, 
for some who have rejected you over and over again. Give them a little space. Give them a little time by your mercy. And let us be quick to find a way to share your glorious gospel to them. Father, do this for us, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. You'll find something about what we're going to do the next four weeks. We're going to do something I've never done before. I've been pastor here for 28 years, and here's what we're going to do. There are nine other pastors on our church staff. You might be hard-pressed to name all nine. If you had to go through them, you might not be able to do it. You might not have names and faces. And so uh, I've asked these nine guys to stand here in the pulpit and preach to you God's Word over uh, nine different services. And so each guy is going to have one topic for that service. And then at the next service, there'll be another guy with another topic. And the next service, another guy with another topic. So this is a great time for you. If you're right here in the middle of August and your house is in air conditioning, just come and stay all morning. It's a perfect place to be. You hear a different speaker, a different topic. Now all the topics have a theme, and that is what are our priorities? What's the priorities of the, of the congregation called Emmanuel? I, I want you to meet these guys. I want you to know their heartbeat. I want you to hear our priorities. I want you to be able to love and support these guys. Maybe you want to do different things. Maybe you want to come. Maybe you've just thought, thought I always want to hear the bluegrass band at 8. So come at 8 and stay for 9.30 and hear two different guys. If you can't stay for multiple services, all the sermons will be posted on our website. Take the time to go there, listen to these guys that you need to know and love and support. There's going to be one exception to that. On August 27th, I've asked, asked uh, Dr. Barrett Duke to preach all three services. Barrett, wave at everybody so they can see that you're right here among us. I want you to meet him and know him. His wife, Denise, is with him. He's the executive director for Southern Baptist Work in Montana, and I want you to hear his heart as well. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. Right after Labor Day, I'm starting Hebrews chapter 11, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, the faith chapter. That's what we'll resume when we get there. By way of benediction this morning, I want you to know that the sermon that I preach to you isn't a new sermon. Maybe you're here and you go like, I've never heard that thing about the unpardonable sin or or it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of a, of a living God. Uh, that's been a part of Christendom for all these centuries since Hebrews was written. But the most eloquent uh, time that that was ever preached uh, was in 1741 uh, by a, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached. I, I kind of taught it to you. He preached it pointedly to people that were playing church. And the Holy Spirit fell, and not just that day, it was a July day in 1741, hot summer day just like this. The Holy Spirit fell on that occasion, but not just then. He became, in that sermon, and other pastors like George Whitfield became a part of a revival movement that became known as the First Great Awakening. And America was changed. It was 1741. It was 30 years before our founding fathers would convene to write our Constitution. You see, this America, while history now is being rewritten, was built because people cared about the things of God and a desire to worship Him and to see the Holy Spirit move 
to accomplish eternal things. So in that spirit, I taught you today the same stuff, praying that God would use in our hearts the certain expectation of a heaven, the fearful expectation of a hell if we reject Christ, and knowing that we only have from now until death or his coming to accomplish that work. So today, I want to encourage you in that spirit, in the spirit of a great awakening, go out and live your faith. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.